Chapter 4 of Time Telling Through the Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Time Telling Through the Ages by Harry Chase Brearley. Chapter 4 Telling Time by the Water Thief now we must take another backward step of thousands of years in considering the subject of time recording it seems necessary to wear a pair of mental seven-league boots for we must often pass back and forth over great periods at single strides while men were still improving the sundial its disadvantages were already recognized and search was being made for some other means of telling time suppose for example that one had only a sundial about the house how would one be able to tell time after sunset or on a dark day how would one know the hour if he were surrounded by tall buildings or a thick growth of trees and it might be very necessary to tell time under any of these conditions then again merely as a question of accuracy the sundial was not always reliable it would get badly out of the way if used by travelers since different markings were needed for different latitudes while on shipboard the motion of the waves would cause the shadow to swing around in the most bewildering manner even under ideal conditions it was never absolutely exact because the apparent motion of our steady-gated old sun is not quite as dependable as most of us imagine astronomers find that they must allow for what they call equation of time in order to make their calculations come out true the question need not be discussed at this point but it can be seen that as humanity left its earliest carefree days and began to get busy and hurried and anxious over its affairs it came to feel that after all the sundial was not altogether sufficient for its needs for this reason we are now taking a third big backward step returning this time not to the caveman but to ancient babylon and egypt probably not less than twenty seven hundred years ago and possibly much longer in this way we meet the clepsydra the clepsydra was an interesting instrument and it had an interesting name which meant the thief of water and came from two greek words meaning thief and water you can trace this in our words kleptomaniac and hydrant we shall now examine a timepiece that was much more nearly a machine than was the simple shade casting sundial the original idea was simple enough at first it was merely that of a vessel of water having a small hole in the bottom so that the liquid dripped out drop by drop as the level within the jar was lowered it showed the time upon a scale thus if the hole were so small and the vessel were so large that it would require twenty-four hours for the water to drip away at an absolutely steady rate it may be seen that the side of the vessel might easily have been marked with twenty-four divisions to indicate the hours 
it may also be seen that the water would drip as rapidly at night or in shadow as in sunlight and the clepsydra could be used indoors which the sundial could not although it required attention in that it must be regularly refilled and the orifice must always be kept completely open because the slightest stoppage would retard the rate of dripping and the clock would run slow the sun which with the other heavenly bodies had therefore been the sole reliance of the human race in its time reckoning could now be ignored and the would-be timekeeper called to his aid another mighty servant from the forces of nature that of gravitation the most interesting human fact however about the clepsydra is that it involved an entirely different conception of the marking of time now it was not so much a question of when as of how long a good sundial set in a proper position would always indicate three o'clock when it was three o'clock but the clepsydra might do no such thing it would merely show how many hours had elapsed since last it was filled and the steady drip 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 of the escaping water could and did lower the surface quite as evenly at one time of day as at another we have already seen that the first purpose in marking time was merely for making appointments but the clepsydra shows that with its invention mankind had already made some progress toward a new point of view one important factor in this change was the very practical need of telling time at night in stormy weather or indoors where the sundial could not be used the clepsydra on the other hand worked equally well at any hour or place and in all sorts of weather nevertheless it too proved to have certain faults after a time people noticed the interesting fact that water ran faster from a full vessel than from one which was nearly empty this was of course because of the greater pressure since such a variation interfered with calculations they hit upon the idea of a double vessel the larger one below containing a float which rose as the vessel filled thus marking the hours upon the scale and the smaller one above the one from which the water dripped being kept constantly filled to the point of overflow this improved form of clepsydra opened a field of fascinating possibilities in time recording it gave the chance to make use of a machine there is perhaps no more interesting point in studying human development than to see the steady inevitable way in which mankind from its cave-dwelling days has tended toward machinery roughly this progress may be characterized as of three stages first primitive man an upright standing animal naked unarmed weak as compared with some creatures slow as compared with others clumsy as compared with still others a creature with many physical disadvantages but with the best brain in the animal kingdom second the tool-using man who had begun to grasp weapons and to fashion implements thus supplementing his natural abilities by artificial means third 
the machine-making man, who has fashioned to himself a mechanical body of incredible powers, that is to say, he has learned to intensify his own powers through artificial means which he has invented, as when he made the telescope to give himself greater vision. He has made inventions by means of which he can outrun the antelopes, outfly the birds, outswim the fishes, outgaze the eagles, and overmatch the elephants in sheer physical force. He can turn night into day, can send his voice across the continent, can strike crushing blows at a distance of many miles, and can carry the movements of the stars in his pocket. Some phases of this third stage were foreshadowed when man first applied wheels and pulleys to his clepsydra. Here, then, was water, steadily raised or lowered by means of uniform dropping. Here was a float, whose motion was controlled by that of the water. Here, in fact, was water power, with a means for applying it. Attach a cord to the float, cause it to turn a wheel by use of the pulley principle, and the motion of the wheel would indicate the time. Still better, rig up a turning pointer, increase its speed through the use of toothed gear wheels, place it in front of a stationary disc divided to indicate the hours, and now the apparatus looked not unlike a modern clock. Or attach a bell and let it be caused to ring at a certain point in the motion. What was that but an alarm clock? Cessibus of Alexandra was the one who is believed first to have applied the toothed wheels to the clepsydra, and this was about 140 B.C. Clepsydrae were expensive, of course. Accurate mechanical work was never cheap until modern times. Cunning craftsmen spent their time upon costly decorations, and these water clocks became triumphs of the jeweler's art, a gift for kings. Therefore, like the sundial, they drifted into Rome, that vast maelstrom of the ancient world. Imagine a great walled city of low, flat-roofed buildings, with fronts and porches of great columns, a town mostly of stone, and much of it of marble, gleaming white under the bright Italian sun, the streets thronged with men in tunics and togas, and here and there some person of importance driving by, standing erect in his chariot, drawn by four horses harnessed abreast, and statues everywhere, in the streets and about the buildings and in cool courtyards and gardens among green leaves. The ancients thought of sculpture as an outdoor thing, and where we have one statue in the streets or public places of our cities, they had a hundred. We treasure the remains of them as artistic wonders in our museums, but they put them indoors and out as common ornaments and lived among them. Presently, we hear of the clepsydra being used in Roman law courts by command of Pompey to limit the time of speakers. This, says one writer of the day, was to prevent babblings, that such as spoke ought to be brief in their speeches. 
it is not difficult to picture some pompous and tiresome togaed advocate rolling out sonorous latin syllables as he cites precedents and builds up arguments while an unseen dropping checks the time against him and to hear his indignant surprise and the chuckles of his auditors when the relentless water-clock cuts him short in the middle of some period marshall the latin poet referring to a tiresome speaker who repeatedly moistened his throat from a glass of water during the lengthy speech suggested that it would be an equal relief to him and to his audience if he were to drink from the clepsydra but roman lawyers were not guileless and sometimes so we are told they tampered with the mechanical regulation or else introduced muddy water which would run out more slowly this suggests one of the difficulties of the clepsydra still more serious was the fact that it would freeze on frosty nights there were no peris among the ancient romans polar exploration interested them not at all but they did spread their conquests into regions of colder weather as when julius caesar mentions using the clepsydra to regulate the length of the night watches in britain his keen mind noted by this means that the summer nights in britain were shorter than those at rome a fact now known to be due to difference of latitude as late as the ninth century a clepsydra was regarded as a princely gift it is said that the good caliph harun al-rashid beloved by all readers of the arabian nights sent one of great beauty to charlemagne the emperor of the west its case was elaborate and at the stroke of each hour small doors opened to give passage to cavaliers after the twelfth hour these cavaliers retired into the case the striking apparatus consisted of small balls which dropped into a resounding basin underneath the clepsydra appears to have been used throughout the middle ages in some european countries and it lingered along in italy and france down to the close of the fifteenth century some of these water clocks were plain tin tubes some were hollow cups each with a tiny hole at the bottom which were placed in water and gradually filled and sank in a definite space of time when the clepsydra was introduced from egypt into greece and later into rome one was considered enough for each town and was set in the marketplace or some public square it was carefully guarded by a civic officer who religiously filled it at stated times the nobility of the town and the wealthy people sent their servants to find out the exact time while the poorer inhabitants were informed occasionally by the sound of the horn which was blown by the attendant of the clepsydra to denote the hour of changing the guard this was much in the spirit of the calls of the watchmen in old england and later in our new england who were in a way walking clocks that shouted eleven o'clock and all's well or whatever might be the hour allowing for the fact that the clepsydra was none too accurate at the best and that its reservoir must occasionally be refilled 
it can be seen that this early form of timepiece having played its part was ready to step off the stage when a more practical successor should arrive with one of its earliest successors we are familiar End of chapter 4 Recording by Linda Johnson